and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and they share their story. They might have overcome something incredible or they might actually still be on their journey, but with stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. Today, a woman who has stayed true to herself and continued to chase her dreams even through times of adversity. Seema Jaswal is a sports presenter rising to the top in a male-dominated industry. After contracting bacterial meningitis at 16 years old, not only was Seema seriously lucky to come through the other end with no lasting after effects, but doctors told her that sport probably saved her life. Fast forward to 2008 and Seema took her first TV job for CBBC's Sports Round and Match of the Day kickabout. Since then, she's presented for a multitude of sports, covering some of the world's most prestigious tournaments. She is currently the female lead co-presenter of ITV's coverage of this summer's Euros. And she's using her platform to speak out about her experience of being an Asian female sports presenter, showing the future females of sport the exciting possibilities ahead of them. So I am so honoured to have her here, remotely here today. Welcome to the podcast, Seema. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the lovely intro. That was beautiful. I really liked that. Oh, it's it's incredible. Just so many achievements, um, but so many barriers that must have been overcome. Um, It feels like such a positive step, you know, everything that you're doing for future generations. I'm guessing at the moment with the Euros, your schedule must be crazy. Oh, it is. It's absolutely crazy. And I think, well, I can't complain because we have to wait a whole year for this. So we have been so excited about the Euros. When I say we, I mean the whole team and the whole nation as well. But finally to have the Euros have started and it just has been so brilliant. I mean, the standard of football has been great. I think many people thought that it would be a bit different because obviously this, the football seasons across the continent, across Europe as well, it's sort of just kind of rolled into the Euros with not much of a break. And we know it's been a very, very different sort of season for the players, but it hasn't stopped it being just as exciting as it would have been. We've had some great matches and yeah, the schedule has been hectic, but I've loved every moment of it. I mean, we've been in studio. I've been pitch side for some of the matches. I've travelled. I went on a plane for the first time oh, last week in ages. It, to, to, um, ha- I was in Scotland, went to Glasgow. So that was a nice short flight, but it was it was just so nice to be in the sky. It was yeah. just bizarre after so long. So yeah, it's been it's been busy. It's so nice to hear. It's so joyful because it's funny. I'm not big into football at all, but I've really found myself just enjoying everything about what the Euro is representing. I've loved seeing the coverage of people happy, people together, um, and just sharing something like minded that we're all interested in. It's really lovely. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to come back to the Euro because you know it, it is so top. Um, But what I want to do at the start of this pod is I want to go back to your childhood. Um, Your parents fled Uganda and you were up in London, is that right? That's correct, yeah. So what was childhood like growing up? What was it like for you? My parents did incredibly well because when they came from Uganda, a lot of Asians actually came at that time during the late 70s. And um, yeah, they... They were just amazing. I had a lovely upbringing, you know, always out and about, always playing outside with friends. I grew up in a really lovely little cul-de-sac where the neighbours all got on. And I had that real like villagey feel to my upbringing, Um, always with family and friends and just playing sports. And if I wasn't doing that, I was, where would we be? We'd just always be together, really. It was really nice. Yeah. You said there about you always playing sport. Who was it that got you into sport and how young were you? So my 
my grandparents, actually, on my mum's side, my granddad specifically, he was a tennis champion in Uganda and he was known by everybody there that for being this incredible tennis player. And so the family all sort of started playing racket sports and that bug for tennis and badminton and all of those sorts of sports, even squash, they all loved racket sports. So when I was born, my parents always used to say to each other, I wonder if she has that tennis gene. I wonder if she can play racket sports. And they took me to my first tennis class at the age of four. So I literally was like, you know, it's like short tennis, having a bit of fun. But the coaches said that actually she, I, I kind of took to it quite naturally, um, entered a tournament age six, I think it was, and ended up winning it randomly. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, like short tennis indoors with like the spongy, the foam balls. Yeah. Um, I just loved it. I just absolutely loved it. So it was something that was with me throughout my childhood. I played tennis quite a lot. But then when I went to school, PE was my, my favourite subject. I loved playing netball, basketball, tennis, football dance you name it I would be part of it because it was just something that I naturally enjoyed so yeah it was always something that I did look at me I look so I look I've actually got I've just realized like this is a like pint. a pint I know yeah. <laughs> I've just realized it's a pint glass this is recorded as well isn't it yeah it's fine it's after it, two o'clock does it look drink? like a pint well, it looks like a pint of vodka it's actually water I can I can confirm <laughs> So you talk about this um, idyllic childhood, you know, it sounds like you were really supported and encouraged, but there was a difficulty in that you were ever so young, you were, you were 16 when you were struck by bacterial meningitis. Can you tell me about that, you know, how, how you contracted it and, and how it affected you? Because at 16, you're still very much a child, really, aren't you? You're still navigating your way through yeah, life. Yeah, 16 years old, you, you're going through all of these big transitions in life and you know you're you're sort of growing up and then you're making that transition to university and I remember that particular part of my life was so unbelievably busy because I was doing my A-levels which I still think are the hardest exams to sit full stop but there was a lot going on in life as well where you're trying to make decisions for your next steps and I I remember um I was in my first year of my A-levels and again completely as I was when I was a child I was doing dance classes and um, what else was I doing? Tennis. I was doing lots of sport and I also was studying PE as an A-level and biology, English, um, sociology. And so life was really, really busy and full on, especially in that first year. And I was also working in a cafe um, to to, um, save some money because I wanted to go to Mexico on a gap year before university. So I'd sort of got that going on at the side. And I remember going to work that day feeling okay. But then I had this headache that just got progressively worse and worse and worse as the day went on. And me being me, I, I never really got ill I'm still that kind of person that's like no I'm fine I don't I don't get ill and if I do I'm kind of like just shake it off take some paracetamol get on with it um but that particular headache felt different and so I, I worked the whole day and then came home and I literally sat on the sofa I was like mum I my head is pounding it's so excruciatingly painful I don't understand what's wrong she naturally she was really worried so she said she like all the doctor I was like no I think I just need to sleep I must just have the flu so anyway went to bed uh, mum came in to check on me, turned on the light and I was like, mum, you have to turn that off. It's so bright. And my mum knew straight away that's one of the biggest signs of meningitis when you you can't look at the light. It's it, it's really too intense if there's any light on and headaches is another sign. Um, so she called the doctor straight away 
and he came over and unfortunately thought that it was the flu so gave me paracetamol and said look she'll be fine um and then left but mum could tell that I was she stayed with me then and she she could just see it she, that I wasn't right so she then called the ambulance because I was then starting to feel sick. And again, that's another sign if you start to feel sick. So she called the paramedics. By the time the paramedics came, I actually started falling into a bit, like I was completely out of it. I don't even remember this part, but um, paramedics came, took me to hospital. I don't remember any of this. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up um, when they were doing the lumbar puncture, trying to extract the fluid from the spine. But in that period, I'd fallen into a coma for about eight hours and so that whole period is completely I don't remember any of it my parents obviously have relayed everything to me and yeah it was really scary because for the person that was sporty fit healthy doing everything to suddenly pick up meningitis which anybody can contract by the way um was really how does it happen then is it you don't know you don't know anyone can catch it and it's very very common Mm. um amongst sort of young that age group 16 to 24 year olds it's Mm. just you know it can be bacterial it can be viral but it's one of those things that there is you don't know how you contract it you just don't Mm -hmm. know and there's still a lot of research being done to understanding it a bit more um i now represent meningitis now as a charity and have sort of met with a lot of meningitis sufferers and their families since and i am i'm just so unbelievably lucky to have come through it without any long-lasting effects because so many people are left either having lost a limb or their sight is impaired or some people Mm. don't make it through. And I've met parents that have lost their children from it and it's devastating. So yeah, I was very lucky. The doctors at the time said to me, I mean, there's no, there's no fact, but I do strongly believe that when you're fit and healthy in general, it does help. And they said to me, if you weren't as healthy, you probably wouldn't have pulled through it as quickly as you did. Cause I was eager to just, I just wanted to get out, but I'd lost loads of weight. I was just skin and bones really after that whole, process i was in hospital for two weeks came out and um yeah they said that sport was a big part of why i managed to to come through it thank goodness your mum you know her instinct she followed her gut she pushed she knew something wasn't right with you um was the recovery like sort of months or years till you were back to feeling like a normal 16 year old it was like three four months but that was with me just really trying to get myself back to normal like mm. trying to eat really healthily and just build up my strength go get back to exercise quite soon I mean the main thing was that I was very weak because of all the weight loss um but yeah I ma- I think my body recovered quicker than most so what about your lucky. mind did it affect your confidence um it I remember at the time I I didn't think it did but I think that there was there were times that I was I did feel really low with the whole thing because people would come so I obviously when you're being 16 years old I had all my friends at college and they all wanted to come to hospital to see me but then you had a few people that were still like oh can I be around you is it all right to be around you and it was that that was really hard I think people would probably feel like that now with the pandemic with having COVID you know when you have something and people Mm -hmm. are worried that that it could be passed on which is perfectly like which is such a normal reaction but that was the bit that got to me where I was totally fine but certain people afterwards thought oh I don't know if I can be around you and I'm like no 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 it's fine now it's absolutely fine but their fears made that made me feel a bit rubbish sometimes because you felt it just felt horrible but 
other than that, I had a really, I mean, I had my support structure around me. I got through it. And then before I knew it, it, it kind of motivated me, to be honest, to just go out there and, and save up for my Mexico trip, which was like everything that I wanted to do. Yeah, it's really interesting when people talk about um, being affected by a disease or a disability and then suddenly having like labels attached to them or some kind of discrimination because of it. You know, lots of people say it actually motivates them on on their not just their journey of recovery but their next steps and yeah I wondered you know it's it's such a male dominated industry but you know here you are a woman in your own right um you're very successful in that world I wondered mm-hmm. what that's been like for you and actually have you noticed changes over the year for women in that world yeah I have definitely noticed changes I think if you'd spoken to the likes of Gabby Logan or Claire Balding Hazel Irvin who I get to present the snooker with who's just amazing um even Kirsty Gallagher who was presenting at Sky Sports News when I was a runner all of these women entered the sports world that sports media world during a time where there weren't many others in fact they were probably the only ones that i remember any anyway watching growing up and now i feel that from the moment i started presenting so i went after sky i went off to india to become the face of indian football and there was an opportunity wow. to present all of their live football coverage there was a new league out there and from that moment, I mean, the Indian public just embraced me. They, it, it's very normal out there for females to front sports. So mm-hmm. that wasn't even a thing that no one even questioned it or made me feel any different. But even when I transitioned back and started presenting the Premier League global coverage, when I go in now on any given day, I look at a call sheet from morning to evening and there will be just as many female presenters as there are male presenters. It's it's actually a lot more balanced and that's my experience I don't know if it would have been the same for everyone and especially a few years back but even with the the snooker that I present I have female floor managers with me female producers directors PAs in my ear it's Hazel and myself fronting the coverage um although we have a lot of male pundits there aren't many female snooker players in the game but still the the whole collective team even behind the scenes I I don't feel like it's so one-sided as much Mm. I mean there are some productions who go on and it is that way but for me even with ITV now you know I have a female producer that I work with that I'll be working with on my highlight shows and yeah it's just I'm working with some great female pundits like Enia Luco and um, Emma Hayes Uh, yeah so I think that things have definitely transitioned and are definitely changing Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So for the Euro, um, Euro 2020, there's the lineup is 11 presenters and you're one of only three women in that lineup. But from that, I, I do take, well, actually, families all over the country will, with young daughters like myself, I've got two young girls, will all be watching you and, you know, our girls will be inspired by you. So yeah. Well, that does partly feel hopeful. I mean, how do you feel about it that? It does. I mean, so I'm basically, it's Mark Pugosh and myself that front it. And then you've got Reshman Chowdhury, another presenter, and Michelle Owen. But then you've got Emma Hayes, Enya Luko, Nadia Nadine. So there's 
a few female pundits, not not as many as the men, but there's a lot more than there ever has been. And mm. so the on-screen presence in general has definitely, it's definitely evolved. Um, but of course, there's always, there's always more that can be done. And I think this is a great platform. It's a great platform. Yeah. And it does make me feel, I feel quite proud to be part of that generation because I can only hope that that will inspire more more women to follow and I think it will do you know I think it will because I have a lot of messages that that I see in my inbox and via my website people getting in touch on social media saying that you know what you've really inspired my daughter who wants to get into football now and I get a lot of those messages and it's so heartwarming it's amazing to see yeah well I was going to ask you you know what what could the industry do to get more women into kind of these lead positions yeah. positions of, of presenting sport but maybe it's not just the industry maybe it's us the parents as well yeah, I think I think it's always a collective. I mean, I think with young girls now, I think if they can see more females in those positions, that's only going to inspire them and make them believe that they can get there. So the industry has a responsibility to absolutely have more females on screen. And I think that the, the broadcasters I've been working with have definitely made that change, definitely made that shift. And what I have noticed as well, I work with a just at the Premier League, for example, I work with a lot of male pundits and they all have daughters who are, I mean, not not my age, but maybe a bit younger than me. And they understand this importance. So there's sort of encouragement mm. from all angles, which feels really positive. Um, but yeah, I think that it's about that collective understanding. I think also behind the scenes in sport, it'd be nice to see, I think you need diversity and change across the board. So even at mm. decision-making levels, you want to see... You want to see a bit more balance. You do want to see diversity. So it's there's still there's still steps that need to be taken, but it's definitely moving in the right in the right direction. Yeah, I think you're right. And you know, when when you were announced um, to be presenting the Euro, I think a lot of people celebrated the fact that you know you're an Asian woman taking the lead role um, in this you know in the sports industry, and I think that was also really fantastic. But I wondered. What is the reality for you of being from an Asian background in this industry? You know, that what are the pros and, and the cons? I think being an Asian, like I'm proud to be doing what I'm doing. I never, growing up, I never really thought of myself as Seema, the Asian woman doing this. I just see myself as me. This is me. This is what I want to do. That part of me is so important. So is the fact that I'm a woman. So is the fact that I'm a daughter. So is the fact that now I'm a wife and I'm a friend and I'm a... You know, all you know, you wear different hats. There's always different mm. roles, and I think now where I'm at, I look back, and again with all the messages and even family coming in and like saying to me, "Wow, we are so proud of you." I think I've realised the importance actually of just opening people's eyes to other possibilities. I don't think I think people know that the media is a a viable option or if I talk about Asian families for example I don't know how many parents encourage their kids to get into media I know my family they they were very open-minded in saying look do what you want to do but I think the media in general is seen as a it's a very very tough industry and tough world to break into so because we're so encouraged um to go to you know to go to university or to, to be educated to have something to fall back on just in case it doesn't go right I think 
hopefully I'm an example of somebody that actually if you just work really hard and you keep going at it and keep going and keep going and keep going it can happen for you and there's also a lot of different things you can do within the media world it's not just on screen there are so many things behind the scenes as well so I think that with where I'm at now hopefully that will open the eyes of others yeah that's really interesting because I was wondering you know what would you say to women like you or the younger you who really want to get into the world of sport or sport sport and television and maybe they don't have the confidence to go for it and yeah I mean you kind of answered that question there of really actually you don't just have to be an academic or you don't just have to look a certain way And, and I think that misconception can sometimes stop people for going um, towards something and and pursuing it? Yeah, I think what I would say to the younger me is that if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. And that's what I've (laughs) always kind of followed from when when I've got into this industry because I I think it's so easy for us to always want to stay in our comfort zone because it's comfortable and sometimes to stretch yourself or to challenge yourself, it's scary. Of course it's scary, but it's okay to be a bit scared, to be a bit challenged at times. And so that is what I would, I would say. I think also with anything that you want to do, and if you want to be the best at it, and especially in the media world, you know this as well, it's, it's tough because so many people want to do what you do because it's, it's a fun industry, but behind the scenes, you have to put in the hard graft. It's not just about, you know, I don't know how you appear or it's not just about one thing it's about multiple things and and I think the biggest thing for me is the preparation and the hard work behind the scenes that prepares you for when you're live on telly broadcasting or presenting a sport to millions around the world like you you need to know your stuff and that's what I do always say first and foremost when anybody asks me about this you know it has to be something you want to do but you have to work hard for it as well. Mm, and you're right I think sometimes people don't necessarily see that you know when you yeah. think of that analogy of a beautiful iceberg and then what's actually going on below the yeah. ocean and, and and how it looks and I, I kind of know in my own life actually when I've experienced discomfort and and life's been difficult mm-hmm. is when I've been forced to change um so amongst all of the other things that you've done when I was researching you um I also saw that you've done some brilliant um speeches you've been to the House of Lords on International Women's Day um the Young Leaders Summit in Manchester and I thought well that's that's really interesting because you are whether it's you know by purpose you are a role model and you're delivering these talks to young people and impressionable people and I wanted to know a little bit more about that part of your life and why it's important to you I think when I was going through this industry, I was told so many times, you don't know anybody. You don't know anybody in the media world. Don't come from a media background. This is going to be a real struggle because you're often told that you need to know somebody or it's all about the network. And networking is really important. It's always good to know the right people. But I went into it knowing nobody, having nobody, nobody that knew the boss of somewhere or that had any insight into what the media world was like. So... When now I've got to a stage where I've been asked to do these talks and, you know, to do the Manchester City Summit and all of those sort of things and International Women's Day as well. I just I think I just feel like, you know what, I really hope that from whatever I've learned along the way, that if I can pass a little bit of it down and it trickles down to the next generation or someone out there and it can help them, then I'm all game for that. 
I learned as I went along and I think there's so much you can learn from just going out there and just seeing what happens sometimes you know no one right there's no rule book I didn't go the conventional route I was told at the very beginning that I didn't have a journalism background because I don't I'm not a traditional journalist I don't have that qualification and I didn't have a media degree I didn't come through that avenue I kind of created my own path so I I think I'd like others to just know that whatever it is you want to do it doesn't even have to be media it could be anything you can create your own path you can you just have to have a little bit of a plan and an idea Mm. of where you're going and have a very good network I'd say when I say network Mm -hmm. I mean somebody that you trust that will be by your side that can advise you or tell you when you're going wrong and you might not know that person now but as you progress through life you do find those people you tend to cross paths with people that then become mentors so I just I like the idea of giving back and the other thing is as I was getting into the industry everybody used to say to me Seema how do you you know how do you present I just freeze when I present like if somebody has to do a wedding speech or like my best friend's um partner had to do a speech at a wedding and so I actually sat with him and helped him to overcome his fears because people find it really really scary and it got me thinking as well we're not taught how to present ourselves nobody's taught we're not taught this at school are we um but yet we have spent so much of our lives presenting ourselves whether it's in a job interview or whether you have to do a speech or a presentation in front of your class I mean how many times have we all dreaded it I remember dreading those things at school thinking I don't want to stand up in front of the class so I developed this from somewhere I don't know how it's just as I've gone along I've just become confident in it and I love what I do and I've worked hard so if I can pass that down to people I I just feel very happy to do that. Mm, I love what you said there about networking connection, because some people listening to this might might think, well, I don't know anyone. I don't have anyone I can rely on. But actually, you should really value every interaction you have, because everyone you meet is there to inspire you, even the negative people, because some people can come into your life to inspire you to be absolutely nothing like them at all. So there's there's no such thing as a dead connection, you know, so really treasure them all and, and, and seek them out for what they are. I agree. I totally agree. Actually, when I first got into the industry before CBBC, I got my CBBC role through through my first agent. And I got my first agent because somebody told me in WH Smith, you can buy this book called The Book of Contacts. I'm oh, pretty yeah, sure it's I still, remember that. Yeah, yeah. And it just has every agency um, contact. So I bought it. I went I had through that it. Book. Did you? Yeah. Well, there you I go. So pens through yeah, it. Yeah, I like yeah. highlighted. Okay, that sounds good. That sounds good. And just sent off emails to all of them, one after another, and that proactive. Thing. And that's how it happened. So yeah. yeah. Well, that's an, that's another example, isn't it? Of like, if you want something make it happen go out there don't worry about looking or feeling stupid don't worry about the rejection because if you approach a thousand people a handful will reply yeah and in an era of social media where we're quite connected now you know you can send mm. someone a message on social media you can on linkedin reach out you know there are different ways you can get you can send out it doesn't have to be like sending your showreel in the post which I remember doing as well like <laughs> making like 10 copies and like posting them out <laughs> yeah I remember that I'm not wanting to send them to, to like people that may not be worth it because it's quite expensive to yeah, make another yeah. copy yeah yeah don't want to waste <laughs> that one yeah <laughs> burn another CD <laughs> oh my god we sound so old I know I actually feel really old now <laughs> so your career I mean it's going to continue to go from strength to strength once the tournament is finished what is next for you and what excites you about the future? Oh, good question. What is next? I don't know what's next, if I'm honest. I think for me, the once the Euros finishes, then I have another year left to do all my Premier League coverage and, and the global coverage that I present. 
And then I have to just see where life takes me, what other opportunities come about. I mean, the snooker and the football sort of with me now. I don't think that's ever going to go anywhere. Um, but then other opportunities that come about. I mean, I'd love to be at the World Cup, which is in Qatar, and hopefully I'll get to be there. Um, we've actually just bought off my hubby and I have bought um, our first home together so I'm oh. properly into like renovation mode now I'm, I can't wait for our planning permission to come back so I can just get my teeth stuck in and like paint and just design this house that I just can't wait to move into um, so I think after the Euros in the in the near future it's going to be house and just spending time with people I think one thing we've all probably felt during lockdown is we just missed our loved ones so much and now as things have started to ease a little bit work's been so busy I also haven't been able to see and spend too much time with my close family and friends so I don't know what yeah. it will be but I'm excited for it and actually that's the beauty isn't it we don't have to map our lives out we don't have to know the next move we just have to keep believing in ourselves and stay excited about this crazy thing called life <laughs> yes exactly you know, and never lose and you, that's what you feel like to me you feel like a really optimistic excitable person I just I, I guess it. just nev never lose that because that's so attractive you know oh thank you no I am I am and I think I feel incredibly lucky to do what I do as well I mean to be able to you know work on things like the Euros and to be part of the Premier League team or the BBC snooker these things sometimes I sit back and I'm like wow like I, I know I worked hard for it but it's just so nice to to actually be part of all of that so mm. um yeah I think I can't I do feel very grateful, especially given the times that we're in as well, to have kept on working throughout it and to have been at Wembley to watch England uh, make it through to the quarterfinals. That was exciting. And I don't know where this is going, but I have a good feeling, Katie. I have a very good feeling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're, we're also on the edge of our seats, aren't we? We're all supporting England. Oh. Well, thank you for sharing um, a part of your life with us. You, you're inspiring so many, I was going to say so many young women, but you're inspiring lots of lots of men and women thank at the you. moment. So thank you. And it's been so lovely to it's have you on the podcast. It's been lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Our oh, pleasure. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials.